0: Years ago, we used to drive across country every year to go to Pennsylvania. You can ask me why later, but we'd load up all the kids and go. And uh, one year, we were heading across country. We had all the kids in the van. I think we had five at that time, all the way down to the baby, who would have been Esther. And we were going to go to um, Yellowstone. And so I worked at the packing shed until about six, and I took off, came home, and we left for Yellowstone. We drove all through the night. Got to Salt Lake City about 9 o'clock in the morning. Spent a couple hours at Salt Lake City and the Great Salt Lake. And then figured we'll drive. It's five hours to Yellowstone. We'll get there about three, camp, spend a couple days there. It's going to be great. Uh, Leaving Salt Lake City, we lost an alternator in our van. It's Saturday afternoon, so we had to go back to Salt Lake City. Found a guy who could do the alternator, but it was a shade tree mechanic. There's grease everywhere, car parts everywhere, so we're stuck in the van. I think April read the entire Chronicle of Narnia series to the kids during that time. And um, after, you know, a few hours, we got going, maybe three or four in the afternoon. It's still five hours to Yellowstone. So I've been awake this whole time and getting pretty tired. The kids, as you can imagine, have been in the van for almost 24 hours. They're pretty cranky. And we get to Yellowstone and pull in, and the guards, we pay our money, he says, so... um, what are your plans? And I said, well, we want to camp for this evening. He said, well, there's a little problem there. There's not a camp spot in all of Yellowstone. I was like, I looked at April, and she looked at me, and we just kind of went. It's like, you got to be kidding. This is a big park. There's got to be a few spots. He said, no. I said, there's got to be overflow. He said, everything's taken, sir. And I said, well, where's the nearest other campground? He goes, well, you can backtrack about an hour. He goes, but it's probably full. Or you can go through the park and go to the other side about a half an hour, but that one's probably full too. By the way, it's two hours across Yellowstone. It's a big park. And I, I just sat there, and it was like, what are we going to do? Now, you might say, what about a hotel? But we were on a really tight budget. We did not stay in hotels. That was not an option. And besides, they probably were all full anyway. So we just sat there and kind of, it was like, we didn't even know what to do do I turn around and go back? Do we go forward? What do we do? There was no options. I said, would you just check one more time? Just one more time. And he said, I can, sir, but he said, there's nothing. And he goes back and he looks, he comes back, he goes, yes, every spot is taken. And then he said the most hopeful word in the English language. He said, but. But. He said, there is one camp spot in all of Yellowstone that has is reserved, but the person hasn't claimed it yet, and if I remember right, we were about quarter till nine, and he said, if that person doesn't call within 15 minutes, that spot is up for grabs, and he said, whoever gets there first, gets the spot, (laughs) there was nobody behind me, and he said, but I, he told me, he said, I don't know who's coming from the other side, and I said, thank you very much, and we took off driving, I want to show you the word but in Scripture. And it's just as hopeful because it falls in a place that's much more desperate than maybe having to drive for five or six more hours. By the way, just so you don't worry, we got the spot. We had a great two days in Yellowstone. It turned out perfect. In fact, it's one of those memories that I'll never forget, which is what camping does for you. Um, Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read through and try and teach through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Ephesians 2 begins... Well, you know what? Before we read it, let me me just talk about the book of Ephesians because we're picking up right in the middle. Um, Ephesians uh, was written to the saints at Ephesus. So whatever is said is said to believers, and that's important. Um, And Paul begins by reminding them of who they are in Christ. And if you ask me what one of my favorite passages in Scripture is, it's Ephesians 1, the entire chapter. Um, If you go to Ephesians 1, in verse 3, he says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places.'" There's absolutely nothing that God can bless you with in Christ that he has not already blessed you with. There is no, I grew up in a time where they were talking about second blessings that God would give you. There is no second blessing. Everything that you can be blessed with, you've been blessed with in Christ. And then it enumerates those for us. Um, it says in verse uh, 4, he chose us, and it goes on to say, to be holy and blameless, we who were not in any ways holy, and we're full of blame. We're chosen to be made holy and blameless. He goes on to say that we were predestined to be adopted as sons. Um, he goes on to say that we have, in verse uh, 7, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then it tells us that he's made known to us the mystery of his will. We know things that no one else ever knew because they've been revealed to us. And then it tells us that we have, in verse 11, obtained an inheritance and that we have been uh, given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that inheritance. And throughout that whole passage is peppered the phrase to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all done so that God's name would be glorified and magnified. In fact, if you look at... Um, verse 12 of Ephesians 1, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then at the end of chapter uh, 1, Paul prays that the Ephesians would understand this. You can say it, but it doesn't mean you understand it. In fact, often the problem with believers is that we don't truly understand that. We don't understand that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We think there has to be something more or we look and we don't understand what that means and, and we begin to try and, and bring blessing upon ourselves, which we can't do. So Paul prays that they would understand it and then chapter two begins and Paul now is going to help them understand. He's gonna try and answer his own, have God answer his own prayer by explaining to them what we were, what God did, and why he did it. So let me read Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By the way, pretty hopeless. Watch the next word. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus All of us, um, if you are not a believer, it's what you are. Um, Verses uh, 4 through 6 tell us what God did to solve the problem, and 7 through 10 tell us why he did it, the purpose for which that was done. But let's begin. You were dead. There's many different ways that the New Testament talks about our condition before Christ. The three main ones are that we were blind or in darkness, and God took us from darkness into light. Second, that we were enslaved, but God took us from slavery into freedom. And the third one is that we were dead, and he made us alive. I think Paul chooses carefully here. He's trying to present the picture of something which is absolutely hopeless, and absolutely helpless. We were dead. So what does it mean? I know this is a silly question. What does it mean to be dead? Well, it obviously means not alive, but the idea of being dead is that you are unable to respond. You're unable to feel. You're unable to do anything. Dead means dead. Uh, There's an old movie that... um, that we own and watch every once in a while. It's called Charades. Uh, it has Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant and If you don't know who those people are, ask your grandparents, okay? They were great actors and actresses from a generation or two ago. But there's an opening scene or an early scene in Charades where a man has, is, it, it, it's a funeral, really more of a wake. There's just a casket there and people are sitting in the, the church. This man has died with a secret. He knows where a lot of money is, and there's three men who want the money. And the first one, all of a sudden, in the middle of this service or this wake, this uh, man opens the door, walks in, and leans down and gets right in his face and just stares at him. Turns around and walks out. And the second man walks in, takes a mirror out of his pocket and puts it right under his nose to see if there's any breath. The third one is the dramatic one. The guy walks in, He has a great big hat pin in his lapel, and he pulls that hat pin out, and he just goes, sticks it right into his chest. And everybody in the audience flinches, right? Except for who? The dead man. He didn't feel anything. He didn't respond at all. There's no life there. There's nothing that says, I just got stuck by a pin. We feel it because we know what that would feel like. He doesn't have any clue. Uh, years ago, we had a cat. We've actually had lots of cats. Um, our house is not a good house for cats. We're on a busy street. You want to get rid of a cat? Just give him to us. <laughs> He'll be gone real quick. Um, except for one, but don't get me started on her. But anyways, um, we had a cat, and I believe the name was Bob. I don't know how we get our cat's names either. Uh, Bob. And I actually liked Bob. And one day I walk out and uh, to go to work, and... and Bob is laying on the front grass, which may not be unusual except that the sprinklers were going. And uh, this was back when we could afford to water our lawn. Anyways, this was a long time ago. And I walked out and I, I looked at that and I said, what is that stupid cat laying in the spring? Bob is dead. What cat lays in the sprinklers? Why is Bob laying there with the sprinklers on? Because he's insensitive. He has no feeling. He has no way to respond. He doesn't even know he's being hit by the sprinklers. So what do you do with the dead cat? Well, I walked over to the cat and I leaned over and I said, Bob, get up. No, I got a shovel and I buried him. There's nothing you can do with that person. That's the condition of mankind prior to God doing a work. Now, what were we dead in? It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And, and it's really important to lay this foundation for this passage because <clears throat> we were dead in the trespasses and sins. The word sin there means to miss the mark. We, some of you know that, many of you. It's an archery term. How close did you come to the target? However much you missed it by is what you sinned. Um, Trespass means to stumble or fall or to go the wrong direction. These are not strong words for sinning. Um, Here's what happens, I think. We oftentimes believe that this applies to people who are really, really sinful. Really sinful. But Paul is applying this to everyone. Everyone who is in this condition is dead unable to respond to God, unable to live their life according to the purpose that God has created you for. So before we go further, how did we miss the mark? I want you to think back to a verse you all memorized. Romans 3.23, what does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You were created to give God glory. You actually were created to share in God's glory. Your life has meaning when God is being glorified in and through you. And someone who is not alive in Christ, someone who is dead, it's impossible for them to give God glory. They will miss the mark. Nothing they can do will, will bring glory to God. You see, we tend to look and say, a person who's really sinful has somehow truly missed the mark. Uh, maybe a serial killer, or maybe you think of some of the great uh, murderers in history, uh, Hitler or Stalin or uh, Pol Pot or whoever it would be. And maybe you read the newspaper and, and or hear a report on the radio and just makes your stomach churn. You think, how can a person be that depraved? How could they do that? Um, this morning in Sunday school, they mentioned that, that um, one of the yards we go to is a special yard. People are put in there are in danger from other prisoners. And one of them are child molesters. Because even in the prison system, right, there's a an hierarchy. And who's the lowest of the low? Child molesters. Well, that's what we tend to do. But this isn't talking about every, uh, only the worst of the worst. This is talking about your neighbor. The neighbor who brought you a cake when you moved in. The neighbor who watches your house, the person who's really nice but has never been made alive, their life is unable to bring glory to God. Absolutely impossible. What does Isaiah say? All our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing good. Romans 3 There's nothing good. No one is good, no not one. So, We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And then it says we walked in them. So, you know, nowadays zombies are everywhere. I don't know much about zombies, thankfully, but I think they're dead people, right, who want to, well, we won't get into all that. They're dead people who are walking around trying to kill other people, right? Um, There are spiritual zombies walking around. People who are dead spiritually, but they're walking. And what are they walking in? They're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Um, our world is under control by the prince of the power of the air. There is a course that everybody travels. My picture of it is if you've ever been to a big sporting event, you've gone to a Giants game or a 49ers game or maybe to a Fresno State game, the game is over. And everybody's heading toward their cars. You guys all have that picture? There's just a mass of humanity heading in one direction. And if you're in there, you're going the same direction. Maybe you halfway through you realize I left my wallet back there and you try and turn around and go back. Better just wait until the crowds go by because everything is moving in that direction. Paul says there's a course of this world. Uh, every... Age has it, but in general, the course of the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Lust of the eyes is materialism. We want the things that we don't have. The lust of the flesh would be all of the pleasures. That could be sex or food or drugs or whatever it is that we think will make us satisfied physically. And the boastful pride of life is humanism. It's when we see man as the measure of all things, that, 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 that mankind is, is uh, that, that making people happy is the ultimate goal, because eventually that becomes making me happy is the ultimate goal. Now, everybody's on different places in that continuum, but if you're not in Christ, you're heading with the stream, and you're going in that direction, um, you're following the the course of this world, then we find out it's the prince of the power of the air. It's Satan himself who is in control and he's clever, takes people there slowly, uh, moves them along so that they think that they're thinking of things themselves when in reality, they're following the course of the world. And then it says, that's the, the work, uh, it's at work in the sons of disobedience. And then verse three says something really uh, scary. It says, Among whom we all once lived, Paul now includes himself, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Um, prior to Christ, there is nothing you can do to please God. There's nothing you can do to glorify God you have no response to God, and you are a child of wrath, which means that God's judgment will fall upon you. Uh, When it says children of wrath, it always refers to unbelievers in the Scripture. God's wrath never falls on believers, it always falls on unbelievers. And now we get to verse 4, and the most hopeful word in the English language, perhaps the most hopeful word in the Bible, because if that's who you are, that's the most desperate situation there is. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in in Christ. Let me, before I start into this, because we're about now to give the gospel, okay? Um, It's easy, because we have heard this so often, to just go, okay, I know this. Uh, We were watching a movie just recently. It was actually a really good movie. It seemed like it had some good Christian values in it, and it was about a man who went blind as a young man and eventually became, well, maybe I shouldn't tell you if you want to watch the movie. Anyways, there's a church scene at the beginning, or in the movie. It's not at the beginning. And I believe this movie was actually made by believers or by people who were sympathetic to Christianity. But there's this scene in church, and they're singing, the choir singing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We sang it last week, if you were there. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And they actually played a couple of verses of it. And that last verse is, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And as they're singing it, they're panning the audience. And there's one guy looking at his watch. There's another guy kind of staring off at the ceiling. There's the mom wrestling her kids. There's uh, high school kids who are drawing, uh, doodling on there. And the whole picture was that of, yeah, we've heard this before. We've heard that song a hundred times. We may have heard this before, but these are the most marvelous words ever written. This should feed our soul as we look at it, because this is what God did for us. It wasn't somebody else. It was you who was dead in your trespasses and sins. So we tear this apart. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It begins by saying, but God, and then it tells us way down further, Paul gets all tangled up with all sorts of different things to describe it, but God made us alive together with Christ. Let me just ask the question again. I know it's obvious. Who made us alive? God. What part did you have in it? I can't hear you guys up here. You have to say it louder. What part did we have? None. 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 Um, perhaps you've been at an evangelistic meeting where they, they're trying to convince people to respond to the gospel. And they say, you know, you're in the... It's like you fall, fell overboard and you're in the water. And, and you're floating in the water and you're going to drown. But somebody in the boat comes and throws you a life preserver. What do you have to do? Well, you've got to grab the life preserver. Okay? Here's the real analogy you're floating face down in the water (laughs) and you've been that way for a long time and you're dead and somebody throws you a life preserver and says, grab onto it, okay? It's as silly as me going and trying to wake Bob up by yelling at him, right? You, You, there's nothing that you do. God made you alive. Only God can make the dead alive. There was nothing that you could do to cause that to happen. God made us alive and then it tells us why. It says, because, and these are all out of order, but it says he made us alive because of the great love with which he loved us. God has a great love for those, uh, those who he makes alive. He had a great love for you if you are one of his. And that great love is demonstrated for us in the cross, which we sung about many times this morning. In fact, we sing about it every week. Um, What does the Bible say? Greater love hath no man than this, than what? He lay down his life for his friends. Nothing greater could demonstrate the love of God. Uh, The love here, and I'm sure most of you know this, is not an emotional love. It's not that God is getting sentimental about us. The love that's being spoken of is love which always seeks for the best for the beloved. And we are the beloved. And God was willing, because of his great love, to send his son, his own son, uh, to die for us. There can be no greater demonstration of love. Uh, Romans says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then it says... While we were enemies, he died for us. That's the great love. We want to be careful not to sentimentalize this and think that it has something to do with something good in us. We always kind of come back to that. There must have been something in me that made God love me. You know, God chose you and he placed his love upon you and he does what's best for you because of his great love. Um, I once heard a preacher say that if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. I don't know if that's true. Uh, God doesn't need a refrigerator. I have a refrigerator because I need one. We have pictures on a refrigerator. And all of those pictures, most of them, have some sort of sentimental value. There's two on a refrigerator right now. I never put any pictures on the refrigerator. April is in charge of refrigerator pictures. But there's two of them. It's Esther and Charles. Esther was uh, the beautiful young lady singing up here this morning. Esther and Charles in their cubbies uniform. Some of you know what that means. If not, it was a Bible memory. And Esther just is beaming and Charles looks mischievous. I'm not quite sure why. But every time I look at that picture, I just it takes me back to when they were little cute little kids and it's emotional. And it makes me feel really good. That's not the love we're talking about. This is God deciding ahead of time. I am going to do the absolute best for these people and what they need is to be made alive. And I'm going to give my son for them to make them alive. And then it talks about two other attributes of God. It says, but God made us alive because of the great love with which he loves us, being rich in mercy, and then by grace you have been saved. Um, We know the difference between mercy and grace, I hope. Mercy is... When you don't get what you do deserve and grace is when you get what you don't deserve, but positive, okay? You get what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. God extends both because we needed both. What did we deserve? We deserve judgment. We deserved death because we were rebels to God, but God made us alive. He took our sins upon himself and he took those away from us, but God being rich in mercy. The grace is where he gives us what we don't deserve. He gave to us spiritual life. He made us his sons and his daughters. He brought us into his family and he gave us a new nature. He gave us life. Um, You might say, well, mercy would have been enough. Well, actually, no. Our problem isn't just that we are under judgment. Our problem is that our nature was dead to God. He needed to make us alive. He needed to change us to make us into the people who could obey. And then in verse 8, it says, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. There's an interesting analogy from the beginning of this passage to the end. At the beginning, it says, we were dead, and then it says, we are made alive. And then it says, you were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. What does God do? He raises us up above the prince of the power of the air. He pulls us up so that we're not in this world anymore. We're seated. We're with Christ. And then it says, he seats us at the right hand of, of, of uh, he seats us with Christ, um, Raised us up with him and seated us with him. We were children of wrath. Now we are sons of God. Who sits at the right hand of God? His son. And where are you sitting right now? At the right hand of God. Because you are in Christ. The verse itself says, and it it says it for both of us, uh, both of them. It's almost repetitive. It says, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us, verse 8, up with him and seated us with him. That word with, there's two words for with. I'm not a Greek scholar, but two words for with. One means to simply be beside. You could be with a group of people and you're with those people. But there's another one that involves much more than that. It's more intimate. It doesn't just mean with next to. It means with in spirit. It means to be united in mind. And that's the one that's used here. God raises us up with him, seats us with him in the heavenly places. So here's the gospel. You were dead, God made you alive. You were dead in trespasses and sins, God made you alive um, and raised us up with him and seated us with him. And now Paul gives us the reason why this is done. And that's in verses 7 through 10. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the first one. There's several of them. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, God wants to pour his kindness out on you for all eternity. He wants to show to us his kindness forever. Um, Imagine that Monday, a a letter comes in the mail, and the letter comes from Bill Gates. And Bill Gates says, I've decided to show my kindness to one person, and I'm tired of my fortune, it's yours. I'm going to every year pour out, for as long as you live, uh, my riches upon you. Anybody would be excited to get that letter? Nobody? I would. I'd be really happy. I'd be like, wow, because he's got a lot of money. And if he wants to show me kindness, go for it. But who is it that's saying that he's going to show us kindness? It's God. And even though Bill Gates has a lot of money, it's not infinite. But God is going to show us his infinite kindness the riches of his grace for all eternity. It says he's going to show it to us. I used to read this verse and think he was showing it to other, peop- or other things. I guess the angels maybe, or maybe beings from other planets. But it's saying that he's showing it to us for all eternity. And then to reemphasize, he says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own offering or your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice the order that that verse is put in. I know you've thought about it a lot if you're a Christian for any length of time. One that everybody memorizes. For by grace you have been saved. How have we been saved? By grace. By grace through faith. And now here's what everybody does. We say... There's the catch. It's got to be through faith. It has to be through faith. So, my part is the faith. Um, I, I, unless I have faith, and then all of a sudden we turn faith into a work. All of a sudden we say, that's the part that I have to do. Now, there's a lot of ways of looking at this, but Paul is very specific. It's by grace that you've been saved. The grace is what saves us, faith is the channel if you want to put it that way, uh, for the grace to flow. But even the faith is a gift from God. Even your ability to place your trust in Christ comes from Him. Uh, jump back, uh, or forward, excuse me, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Um, Paul says to the Philippians, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Um, You have been granted belief. You've been granted faith. It's part of what God does when he makes you alive. Um, It is true that when God makes you alive, there's a response that's required, but it's not the response of a dead person. It's not your faith that's saving you. It's the fact that God has poured out his grace upon you. He's made you alive. Now when the person sticks the pin into you, you jump because you're alive and you can feel. And it's at that point that God draws you to himself and, 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 and allows you to choose to unleash the grace that God has given to you. Um, there would be a lot of people who might disagree with that, but you need to think it through carefully. If, if your faith is the key, then you're the key. But if it's God who's making us alive, then the glory and the honor goes to, to him. And then finally, in Ephesians, it says why this has happened. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now comes full circle to where we began. Remember the beginning of the passage? You were dead in trespasses and sins. Nothing you do could bring glory to God. Nothing that you could do would be good. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. But that's not what God created you for. God created you for good works. God created you to to live for him. And ultimately, he, he created you to bring glory to God. And now we're able to do it. Um, if you look at this as a burden, oh great, now I have to go out and do good work. Something is wrong. This is what we were created to do, was to, to bring glory to God and to, to, to live for him. And now because of his grace, we're able to do it. We are his workmanship. That word workmanship is actually the word for poem. We are his poem. Some people will say we are his masterpiece. He made us for a purpose, and now through his grace, we're alive to him, and we can do that. And in doing that, we fulfill our purpose, because the purpose for which you were created was to glorify God and to bring him glory. Um, See if I can find my verse here. John, uh, excuse me, go back to Matthew 5, 16. uh, Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The good works that we're doing now are His works, and they bring glory to God um, by doing it. And more than that, we share in His glory. You were created to bring glory to God, but you were actually created as well to share in God's glory. Um, And we probably need to look at that because you might say, wait a minute, maybe we've crossed the line. Go back to John chapter 17. Jesus in his high priestly prayer prays for us. This is before the cross, the night before he's to die and he's with his praying, not the Lord's prayer, but His prayer before his Father, we call it the high priestly prayer. He says, I do not, at verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be us. That they may be, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now watch verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. We were created for a purpose to share in God's glory, but, but sin ruined it, made us dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. Only God could solve that problem. He made us alive together with him. He provided everything there is for, for us to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, which is to live for him and bring glory to him and to, to, to do the works that he made ahead of time for us. Um, There may be some in this room who are saying, I I hear what you're saying, and and I never realized I was dead in my trespasses and sins. What do I do? Well, the answer is if God is moving in your heart and he has made you alive, you need to unleash that. You need to, in faith, reach out to him. You need to say, God, I, I, I want that. I want your salvation. I know what I was And I know what I want to be and to place your faith in Christ. For those of us who aren't, we need to always be thinking, what was I put here for? I was put here to bring glory to God. And only through his grace am I able to do that. Only because of what he's done in me by making me alive together with Christ, raising me up, seating with him, giving me every spiritual blessing, can I do that? But our lives should be lived for him and for his glory.